Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. We're doing something a little different this week, a deep dive into how other countries' health systems work. We'll be back with our regular news panel next week. We're also taping this early on December 10th on the theory that countries aren't going to change their health systems between now and when you hear it. And our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. So let's get to it. We are pleased to welcome to the podcast in the studio two experts on international health systems. Gerard Anderson is a professor at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health in Baltimore. Welcome. Thank you for inviting me. And Chris Pope is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute who's worked on Capitol Hill. Welcome. It's great to be here. So I know there's so much confusion about how other developed nations organize and pay for health care. Pretty much everyone just kind of knows that they cover more people and spend less money than we do here in the USA. Before we get into the nitty gritty of how they do it, I want each of you to tell me what you think the single biggest misconception is that Americans have about other countries' health care systems. Chris. Well, I think every country's healthcare system is enormously different, and and they're really woven into the nature of the country's economies, their societies, their labor markets, their the the way that they're structured geographically. And so, the healthcare system's like any other part of the economy. It reflects the country that that it comes from, and it reflects all the trade offs that people in that country are concerned with, and the resources that the country has to uh, deploy on healthcare. But, but what is it that Americans think about healthcare system? Other countries' health care systems that's maybe not quite right? Well, I, I think Americans sort of look desperately at other countries and think, surely there's an easier way and maybe there's a way to simply get more health care for less money. And it, it, uh, at least officially, it seems like that that is what happens in other countries. Certainly, certainly some of the countries from a distance, it looks like that. But that's not necessarily the case. It's actually kind of extraordinary how similar in some ways the trade-offs are uh, between countries' healthcare systems. I, I grew up in England, and even though people talk about healthcare in very, very different ways, the nuts and bolts of the trade-offs are pretty much the same everywhere. People want to ensure more access to care. People want to make sure that they're uh, sort of trying to minimize the cost that individuals are bearing themselves. People want to encourage innovation, make sure that cutting-edge treatments are funded. And then there are all kinds of local issues. People want to make sure that the local hospitals remain solvent, that there is a wide range of services available locally. And these things, you can't have all of them. And so you end up having to cut on some of them in, in, in terms of advancing other objectives. The trade-off problem is basically an issue that every country has to deal with, but it manifests itself in different ways. And in some places, it's more visible. It's it's very much the patient is aware of the trade-off and the patient is making the trade-off. And in other countries, it's essentially bureaucrats that are making the trade-off and the patient's often unaware that a trade-off has, has been made on their behalf. Jerry, what do you think Americans get most wrong about other countries' health care? I think what we hear a lot about are waiting lists. You know, waiting lists in the UK, waiting lists in Canada, waiting lists in a whole variety of places. And this has been around for a long time. So about 10 or so years ago, I did a study looking at waiting lists for cataract surgery. And we were trying to understand, you know, how long it was in various countries and how bad it was. And it turns out that generally you're going to wait about six months, which sounds horrible because if you're told you need cataract surgery, you want it now. The pro- the thing is that 
the doctors know that too. And so what they do typically is put you on the waiting list before you need cataract surgery. And so six months later, when you get it, it's really the time when your cataract is ripe. Now, if it turns out that something goes wrong, there's always somebody who skips their appointment. So you can jump the queue if it's necessary and the doctor thinks it. So, um, you know, that's one thing. The other thing about uh, waiting lists is, you know, for Canada, it's pretty easy for most people to jump across the, the border. It's getting a little harder these days, but it's, it's pretty easy to do it to get into Seattle or come down to Johns Hopkins or someplace like that. And we don't see very many people coming across the border. So if they were really concerned about waiting, they would jump the border. Obviously, the United States is more expensive. But if you're really concerned, you would jump the queue. And Although you would jump the border, assuming you had the money to pay for it here. Yes, it'd be much, it would be more expensive. But if you're a rich person, but you know, if you look at the hospitals in Detroit or in Buffalo or Seattle, they are not filled with Canadians, even rich Canadians, jumping the queue. So one of the things that I find people get most confused about is sort of this difference between single payer and Medicare for all. Um, what what does that actually mean in terms of how other countries do it? They're, they're sort of different ideas of how much government involvement there is, right? Oh, there's a huge amount of, of differences there. So single payer and Medicare for all is just one example of single payer. So this concept of single payer is that there's generally the government entity that's essentially financing your health care. And, and then you can do it in a whole variety of different taxation systems and everything else. So, you know, Medicare for all is just one, one example example of single payer. And Medicare for all, I guess, is what they have in Canada, right? Well, the Canadian system is literally called Medicare, as actually is the Australian system. So there is a sense in which the brand Medicare has some appeal even beyond the borders here. I think of single payer as sort of like a conceptual scheme. It's sort of a conceptual idea that the government is the sole purchaser of healthcare, as the name would suggest. The term Medicare for all seems more nebulous to me. It could potentially mean all kinds of different things. We've, we've certainly seen it attached to the single payer model as, as Senator Sanders wanted it to be. But then also Kamala Harris had a, a model that looks a bit like Medicare Advantage, which is sort of a competing payer model, competing private insurers. And then other candidates have talked about supplemental insurance. And, and obviously Medicare also makes room for supplemental insurance with Medigap. And that's sort of more like other kinds of countries' insurance systems. So the Medicare for all label, I sort of feel, is, is a fairly elastic label. You can, you can pretty much attach it to almost anything that one might want to attach it on. And if you look at the diversity of plans that are in the Democratic primary alone, um, it, I think that diversity really is kind of coming across uh, that that. that the candidates are all for Medicare for all, but they're actually in practice for very substantively different health care plans. Yeah, Medi Medicare for all is what you want it to be. And everybody essentially has their own version of Medicare for all. And yes, that's what Medicare for all is. Well, let's talk a little more about what other countries do. Chris, you've created this taxonomy, if you will, of types of plans that different countries have. Can you sort of talk about them? Healthcare policy has hundred different dimensions, hundreds even. Um, 
And so any kind of taxonomy is sort of somewhat arbitrary at some level. But I, I think it's sort of helpful for the purposes of, of sort of organizing one's thoughts, almost to sort of thinking about like ideal type models, like different sort of goals that are trying to be reflected and different types of trade-offs that these systems are trying to get towards. And so the, these models that I sort of suggested are really intended sort of as a pure model, not, not necessarily as saying that this country is exactly this model. So the models that I've sort of spoken about, the simplest one is the single payer model. Everyone sort of understands what's involved in that. It's the government being the sole purchaser of healthcare services, essentially the sole effective purchaser really in practice. Secondarily, I talk about a model which I refer to as the dual payer model. And I suggest that that actually is what they have in Australia and in France. And I sort of see this as almost a tweaked single payer model. It's a model in which there is a government entitlement where the government purchases all healthcare services for people. But then individuals can purchase supplemental private insurance to get better access to care from private facilities that aren't necessarily part of the publicly provided, publicly financed model. So I call that the dual payer model. The third model that I really talk about is what I call the competing payer model. And I think it's it's fairly equivalent to what I think people in, in healthcare policy talk about as managed competition. It's the idea of you have competing private insurers that are responsible for an individual's medical costs, quite often with, with a large amount of government subsidies, but also uh, to some extent private premiums. And in the pure model uh, version of it that, that one might imagine, the insurer is entirely responsible for, for procuring care and for doing so in whichever way it finds is most efficient for, from hospitals, physicians, and so on. In practice, these models are all a little bit jumbled up, and so no, no, no country actually sort of has a pure competitive payer model. But the ones that I think come closest and really are probably closer to this model than, than any other country are Germany, um, Holland, and Switzerland. And I, I would say that these countries have probably been moving sort of consciously towards that model uh, over the past couple of decades or so. And, and then what I call the fourth model, which really isn't a model uh, <laughs> in any real sense, is what I've called the segmented payer model, really intended to refer to the United States, but also, I think, referring to some historical experiences in, in countries like Germany, like 30 or 40 years ago, it was much more like this, where you had people very much siloed employer by employer. The employer essentially purchases the plan. If you're not in an employment relationship that can provide health care to you, you're probably in an entitlement, which is a very different type of, of way of purchasing health care. There's not a huge amount of competition at the individual level, but you have these, these, these big sort of fragmented silos, different payers. And for people... And quite often, uh, if you're moving between the, the silos, things can get a little tricky, and, and and that's where the problems can can become more acute. Every PowerPoint I've ever done has a picture of silos in it. Yeah, <laughs> actual farm silos. <laughs> um, Jerry, would you add to that? And also, then I want to sort of dig down on this sort of single payer because I think we're sort of missing a distinction here. But sure. So I, I've been teaching this course on comparative health insurance at Johns Hopkins for many years, and and I think Chris has got it right. So I don't want to to change it. I just want to amplify it just a little bit. Um, the first thing um, is, and Chris is exactly right on this, is students tend to think of, well, we have a model, therefore the country should follow that model. And they never follow that model because they didn't have the model. That's something that I or Chris or somebody developed and then and they because they had their system. So I think that's just important for the readers and the listeners to understand on this. Um, 
The other thing that that students don't typically understand is we're just talking about the financing side, not the delivery system side. So there's a whole different set of things of how much do you have the government involved in the delivery system? And some countries, it's very heavily involved. In other countries, it's not. The countries are moving away from being heavily involved in the delivery system, um, but there's some of them still have a fairly robust role. The only one country that I think is fascinating to me that Chris Din mentioned is a Singapore-type model, where essentially you're, you, you have to get insurance, but it's really a high-deductible health plan in U.S. parlance, and you're responsible for most of your expenditures until you incur a fairly significant amount of expenditures, and then is when insurance kicks in. And then they've had to do some more modifications on that. But that's another model that, you know, and many of us in the United States have high-deductible health plans. So, um, you know, it's something that that we all should finally take a look at. Do they have a better way of dealing with out-of-pocket expenses than we do? Well, they essentially expect that you're going to have out-of-pocket expenses. That's It's built into the model, their sort of philosophy. They came from the British system where they got everything paid for to a system where the concept is, you know, you're going to have to pay for taxation or you're going to have to pay for your health insurance benefit for your employer. So you should just pay for it as long as it's not a big amount because a big amount you can't afford. But a small amount, and that's a normal doctor visit or even a normal outpatient visit, you should be able to pay for that's the that's the system that Singapore has. That's the system that the U.S. had until we started getting really big deductibles too, right? Exactly, exactly. So, so what? Somebody, I want to talk about the difference a little bit though between Britain and Canada because those are both under your, you know, taxonomy. Those are both single payer systems, but they're very different. Let's start with the the most obvious differences. It, firstly, prescription drugs aren't covered across the board in Canada, whereas they are in Britain. Uh, that That's by far the biggest difference. The second very noticeable difference was probably bigger 20 years ago than it is now, was that in, in England, all the hospitals were owned by the government, managed by the government. Everyone was essentially a public employee. Whereas in Canada, the, the hospitals are mostly private nonprofits, a similar mix to in the United States. So More like our Medicare system. Right, right exactly. Like you, the government would pay for care, but you would have private hospitals, essentially. Whereas in, in Britain, they, they were all state-owned. In England, there has been some gradual movement. Um, it's hard to tell, really, what exactly the official legal status is of British hospitals. There, if you look at the organizational chart, it's it's clearly a public-private partnership. But what that actually means in practice, it's sort of somewhat nebulous and in between, and and, and constantly changing. Um, uh, but it, it's definitely moving towards more of a separation between the government as a payer and a privately delivered hospital system. The similarities, I, I think, probably worth defining. And I, I think you can then draw out the, the differences from the similarities. Similarities are for hospital and physician services, there are no out-of-pocket costs. Um, everything is paid for according by the government in a very standardized way across the country. Although in Canada, you have different provinces that have different ways of paying, but it's ultimately the same thing. In Britain, again, some regional variation, but, but ultimately the same principle. The one thing that might sound like it's different in England is 
in England, everywhere across the country, you can purchase private insurance to get better access to elective surgery, scheduled surgery, often like knee replacement or hip replacement. Whereas in Canada, that's really not an option. Um, but even in England, it, it's fairly rare. So only about 10% of the population has that kind of insurance. Um, in Canada, that really isn't the case unless you sort of have the ability to go across the border and pay out of pocket for a which is increasingly expensive and probably increasingly far uh, out of reach for people. The two things that I would add is when the Canadian system started in 1972, it was the series of provinces. And every province did its own thing, and you couldn't go from Saskatchewan to Manitoba and necessarily get care um, because it was a provincial program. In 1972, they said, no, we're one country. And therefore, we should have one health care system. But they still wanted to maintain the provincial system. So every province really runs its own system, but the federal government takes money from the rich provinces and gives it to the poor provinces. In the United States, that would sort of be similar to Medicaid, um, where, we, where we do that. But there is a bit of a Robin Hood kind of, of, of approach there. They have sort of moved away from that, because, but they still do that. So, you know, a number of countries, the big countries like India and places like that, they're all interested in this whole provincial system, and we have a little bit of that. The second thing that's different is in the U.K., they have a system called NICE um, and National Institute for Clinical Excellence. And what they do is they look at the, the drugs, the procedures, and they say, is this cost effective? And if it's cost effective, we will make it as part of the benefit package. In, in Canada, they don't really have a thing equivalent to NICE. They, they look at the drugs, but they don't have a centralized mechanism to do this resource allocation and therefore put it on the formulary or put it in the, the benefit package of that particular But country. they do have price controls. But they do have price controls, but it's a very different thing. And, you know, the way I like to think of NICE for drugs, for example, is they say, we're willing to spend X number of dollars for quality-adjusted life here, for the benefit. And if you, the drug company, are willing to price lower than that, you're on the formulary. If you want to charge more than that, you're not on the formulary. But you tell the company your willingness to pay based upon the, the benefits. And, you know, that's an approach that, you know, a, country's, a number of countries are doing. I want to talk about a little bit about out-of-pocket spending, and I realize this is not this is the hardest thing for me to wrap my head around when it comes to other countries, because of course the out-of-pocket spending at the point of service is very different from what people pay for healthcare in these other countries, because as you point out, a lot of it's built into their taxes if it's coming through the government. So it's not really the perfect sort of comparison, but it does at least say what you're going to pay when you get sick. Um, so so what? So, so what the, are, the United ahead. States is very interesting because we have some of the lowest percentages of, of out-of-pocket dollars. So only about 10% of our health care dollar is paid out-of-pocket. Um, most of the industrialized countries, it's closer to 20%. So as a percent, we are actually very low. Only France has a lower percentage than we do. On the other hand, in terms of dollars, because we spend so much, we have the second highest out-of-pocket dollars at a little over $1,000. 
Switzerland is almost uh, $2,500, but everybody else is around $700, $600. So it depends on if you're looking at a percent or a dollar amount of whether or not we are an outlier. And we're an outlier in both, both things, but we're on the high end in dollars and the low end in percentages. That does factor in taxes, right? Right. But it also is benefits. So, you know, do you cover dental benefits? Do you cover out of uh, other things that dental and long-term care and all these things? What is covered in the benefit package? And, and as Chris said, countries make very different trade-offs. Some countries have very low out-of-pocket spending at the point of care, and other countries, not so much. I mean, we're talking about Singapore. (laughs) Yeah, I I think something that's really illustrative to think about this is really to think about third-world health care. In the third world, the out-of-pocket share of health care spending is enormous. Generally Um, about 80%. Exactly. In countries that don't have entitlements, that don't have well-developed insurance market, out-of-pocket spending is, is basically what you have to do. That is the last resort in many cases. So the out-of-pocket share often reflects the absence of, of other sort of well-effective institutions that are going to bear healthcare costs. And actually, if you sort of compare the out-of-pocket spending between countries, the breakdown is actually very different in terms of services. So in, in the United States, we sort of think about out-of-pocket costs as something that you bear when you're inpatient, outpatient, and then sort of prescription drugs almost sort of, it's a feature of all three landscapes. Well, in Canada, for instance, it's not at all a feature on sort of hospital care, not at all a feature on physician services, but quite often is uh, like bearing almost the entirety of the cost for, for people on the drug side. And so some countries might have a very, very large out-of-pocket uh, costs, uh, expenses on drugs, while not having much at all on hospital and physician services. So really, it can be the case that if you're experienced or if you're only looking at hospitals and trying to infer from that, that you're not necessarily getting a, a sort of picture of the overall uh, landscape of things. One of my colleagues spent some time in Germany this summer, and one of the stories she wrote was about how Germany has very generous drug coverage, but they don't cover birth control at all, mm-hmm. which whereas in the United States, that's now required under the Affordable Care Act. For, right. So it, there are trade-offs, and, and that was a but, trade-off that Germany but, has made. But Germany offers spa vacations as part of a benefit package. So, you know, not birth control, but, you know, once you have the baby, you get to go to a spa vacation. There you go. <laughs> so I want to ask each of you, um, if there's one single country that you think has made these trade-offs the best, as in a country whose system you would like to live under, uh, and a separate question, which probably has a different answer. Is there a country that would be the easiest or the most practical for the U.S. to emulate? I start out my lectures or my whole class in saying it all depends on your values. So, you know, do I want cost sharing? Who do I want to pay for it? Do I want progressive taxation, regressive taxation? So I can tell you my values, but that might not be your values or Chris's values. So my values is I would probably go to the U.K., because I think it really should be a progressive taxation system. I do think that it should be very low out-of-pocket spending because I, as a patient, don't really have a good sense of, do I need this drug or that drug? And so I'd rather have somebody else make those kinds of decisions for me, as much as I think that I understand the issues as well as any layman would. So um, the, so for me, I would I would go there. To the country that's most like 
the United States to adopt, I would say it would probably be Germany, um, where, you know, you still have a choice of health insurance systems. Americans love choice. Um, I don't know how much real choice they have, but they really like having the choice for those things. And I think that d does it. They, they, they're really a specialty-oriented system instead of a primary care-oriented system. So they like, you know, Americans like that. You have access to all the drugs, all the new drugs, uh, at least initially. Americans like that. So I think the American public would probably be most interested in a German-type system. With the spa vacations. With, of course, with spa <laughs> vacations. Chris. Well, I mean, how can I say no to spa vacations? That seems to be a decisive uh, factor. I, I actually sort of think that when you're thinking about where the best place to get care in, it actually doesn't have that much to do with the model of payment for healthcare. Um, I think like the efficiency of different types of healthcare systems probably it has an effect, but maybe effect like like ten to twenty percent of difference in terms of costs or efficiency. The big thing is really how expensive it is to deliver care in these places. And I, I think if you sort of look across countries, like France really delivers care much, much cheaper than many other countries. And that's simply because its medical labor costs are much, much less. So they pay their doctors and they, I assume everybody else less. Much, much less, less than half than we do and less than half than many other countries do uh, as well. But the thing is, you can't just do that for doctors. The thing is, teachers in France are also paid very little as well. Like the average teacher salary in France is about less than half than it is in the, in the United States. And it, when we're talking about physicians and especially high-end physicians, we're talking about the highest skilled workers quite often in, in, in the labor force. And so it's very, very hard to say, I would love to have France's medical labor costs plugged in uh, a different healthcare system. And so where you would go for the best care, best value care, uh, where you would be able to get the best value care isn't necessarily the most useful model for us to emulate. Um, I, yeah, but I, I'm asking for the first question is where would you, of, of all the, the, you've obviously lived under more than one system. Is there a system that you find for your values you would like to live under? If we're talking about like a model that one ought to aspire to, I, I think the, the competing payer model is, is the attractive one, the idea that an individual is in control of their choice of plan. So the, the it's, Germany, it's a, Netherlands, yeah, Switzerland. It's not assigned to them by an employer. It's not assigned to them by the government. Like they really get to make the trade-offs for themselves. They're able to sort of compare the, the price and then what you get for the price. And I think that ultimately sort of, uh, and then with the government obviously putting in money uh, to sort of supplement that for the people who can't pay for it for themselves. I, I think that that's that's the right approach. Um, and the, the, the ideal we should be moving towards. In terms of like what's useful to learn from other countries, I, I think that both um, Germany and Holland, and especially Holland, have sort of started off 20 years ago with very similar problems to the ones that we face. They had more of a fragmented system between different payers, a real lack of accountability, a real lack of coordination, people who were sort of falling between the gaps between different insurance programs and entitlement programs, um, a real lack of competition on the provider side, real lack of uh, hospital competition. Holland's done a lot of work in, in that respect over the past decade or two. And I think that there's a lot that we can learn especially on focusing on countries not so much that ended up where we want to go, but that started out with a set of problems that were similar to the set of problems that we face. So I think that's probably the most useful way to think about looking at other countries. 
Yeah, I, I don't think you, you essentially adopt the whole system. You adopt aspects of the system and how they deal with people with chronic conditions or how they deal with hospice or how they deal with a variety of activities is what you do or how they decide to pay for drugs. I mean, you, you take a piece and you see, can I use that piece as opposed to saying, I want to go to Germany or I want to take the whole German system because, as Chris says, it's embedded in all sorts of things, you know, not just doctors and school teachers, but also lawyers and investment bankers and everything else are part of the, you know, the fabric. I love to tell the story. I was in Switzerland in 2008, so it's getting to be a while ago. And everywhere we went, um, I asked people if they would trade their country's healthcare system for anybody else's. And almost to a person, they said no. They really liked their healthcare system, which was remarkably different from the United States. But the the last person that we interviewed, who was a guy who was working on the risk adjuster, because they had so many competing private plans, was very important. And I asked him, you know, so would you trade your healthcare system? And he thought, and he said. I would really like to have the Dutch risk adjuster. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but it was, which, which sort of leads me to my next question. Um, one of the articles that has had sort of a big impact on the way I think about other countries' healthcare systems was written by Atul Gawande in The New Yorker in 2009, just as the U.S. was starting the big debate that led to the Affordable Care Act. And he pointed out that most other nations' big healthcare changes came about by building on what they already had. There was usually some kind of external impetus. Are there examples of countries that overhauled their systems by throwing out their first one and starting over? Because that's certainly what we're kind of talking about here in the U.S. I, I think the obvious example would be more or less Britain in 1946, when they had sort of a mix of charity hospitals and private insurance and government programs. And then they threw it out and basically had the government essentially take over the whole healthcare system and bring everything in-house and onto the government payroll. Now, that's a little bit different, difficult, because if you think about what happened in Britain in 1946, that was basically when the British Empire was being liquidated. That was basically when World War II was ending. And so you had all these costs, basically the cost of running the empire <laughs> that was disappearing. All the costs of having the military mobilized for World War II had disappeared. What can you do with that money? Well, you can buy the entire healthcare system, which they the, used their peace dividend to which, buy the healthcare system, which at the time was probably only one or two percent of GDP. Now, when you think of the American healthcare system now, that's 17% of GDP. So even if we had an empire that we could shed, even if we had a world war that was ending, that was generating a lot of service, uh, uh, savings, it wouldn't go anywhere near the, the, the amount of money that you would need now to buy, buy out the entire healthcare system and bring it onto the, uh, onto the government books. So I agree that UK is probably the best example, you know, but you really had to have the Second World War to make it happen. Well, that's because, what I was saying. That's sort of the externalism. Right. But it was because, you know, they, they really couldn't have the existing system that they had prior to the war operating at the time. So they essentially had to essentially nationalize everything uh, to make it operational. And then, you know, the war is over. Do we go back to the old system? Do we take the new system? And, you know, if you remember the the, the London Olympics, you know, in, in the middle of the, right at the beginning, the opening thing, it was all about the NHS. I mean, I can't imagine any other country emphasizing that, but they were really pleased with that. Every health nerd noticed that during the opening ceremony <laughs> yeah, exactly. of the Olympics. I can imagine the Canadians also doing it. Yes, but essentially it's provincial. So, you know, it might be Ontario doing it or Quebec doing it, but not necessarily, you know, Ottawa doing it. Yeah, I don't remember at the Vancouver Olympics having that happen, but I do remember the London Olympics. And then the other one that I mentioned was Singapore. 
So they essentially had the British system and they said, that's not our values. We have different values and we want to go and have much more personal responsibility. So that's an example in the opposite direction. So I want and I want to sort of drive this point home as, as we sort of sum up the U.S. If you know, you look at the OECD rankings, you know, we, we spend the most um, and we don't cover everybody and we don't get the best outcomes. Um, pretty much no matter how other countries do it, they do it better than we do. Right. Or at least by our arguable things that you would measure as outcomes. Correct. And I think, you know, for me, and, and I've written this paper now twice, it's called It's Price is Stupid. And essentially, you know, our, our differences is not that we have more, we actually have fewer doctors, we have fewer nurses, we have fewer hospital beds. So we invest fewer real resources into the healthcare systems than most other industrialized countries. We just pay twice to three times, and for many pharmaceuticals, four times what other countries pay for the same thing. So I think it's important to recognize that it is the prices that really differentiate our spending, not the resources that we put into the healthcare system. Germany's spa vacations notwithstanding. My background is as a political scientist, I tend to sort of say this in a political way. And, and I feel like the one thing that really differentiates the United States from other countries is that it is the wealthiest country. And if there is an inefficiency in the system, the path of least resistance politically is always to throw more money at the problem. It's always to let the providers charge a little bit higher to, as, as part of a compromise, increase entitlement spending to patch over any kind of difficulties in reform, and to kind of let prices go up and kind of tolerate it and never really crack down in any kind of way, never really tighten the screws on providers or hospitals or, or any kind of sources of costs in the system. And other countries, I think, at some level might have wanted to do that, but because they have less resources than the United States do and are certainly more constrained in terms of the budget deficit for sort of macroeconomic reasons, like they, they're they not able to tolerate as much inefficiency as we can. And I feel like it's almost like a result of the fact that the United States is a more affluent country and a wealthier country and the, and the, the country that has the reserve global currency. Yeah, I think the one thing that I would disagree with you on is who's providing the more money. Because if I look at right now and how much you pay a doctor, Medicare will pay a dollar and the private sector will pay $2 for that same visit or, or a hospital day. So what, what's happened is that the private sector's prices are going up much faster than the public sector because, you know, in Washington or in New York, you've got to have those hospitals in your system as a private system, and they control the, the prices, not the insurers in many cases. So I, I think that's the thing that's changed for me over the last 10 years is really the growing difference differential between what the private and public sector pay. Yeah, I, I think on the hospital side of things, especially, that is definitely the, the big problem and the big challenge that we're going to have to address. And, and at some point, these problems get big enough that you actually do have to address them and insist that trade-offs come into place and we start thinking about them rather than just kind of throwing money around to make the trade-off kind of go away for a little while. So last question, pr prediction, U.S. going to eventually do something incremental or it's going to be so bad that we're going to have to just sort of do something dramatic. So I, I think at the conceptual level, there's some bipartisan agreement on what I would sort of say would be the competitive model. Um, 
Like Republicans, I think, are, are very, very enthusiastic about the way Medicare Advantage works, uh, the way that that program has succeeded in basically improving the quality of benefits, improving the quality of care, and also generating some savings for beneficiaries as well. Um, and then on, on the Democratic side, um, like the idea behind the Affordable Care Act really was the idea that individuals should be allowed to purchase their health care plans, in some ways trying to nudge away from uh, the, the employer-sponsored market with things like the Cadillac tax even if I don't entirely agree with the nature of the way they do it. I think the basic idea is sort of not entirely different. Where I think we're sort of running into some really big challenges are the provider payment rules and the structure of the provider market that's sort of underneath that. And that, I think, is sort of making every other thing very, very difficult. It's very, very easy to sort of do trade-offs when all the prices are low. When all the prices are really high, the trade-offs start getting really painful. And so I think we we are going to have to address and and, and and the surprise billing debate is only almost like the taste of this. It's like trying to think about like what exactly should be the rules for when insurers are negotiating with hospitals? Like to what extent do we want to sort of stack the deck on the side of the insurers who are negotiating or the providers who are negotiating? And to what extent do we want to be more prescriptive about prices? So for me, um, I think it is incremental as opposed to blowing it up. But um, where I think where we might move is really towards the public option because the public sector is able to get lower rates. The benefit packages are similar. In fact, in many cases, the private sector has better benefit packages than the public sector. So you might be trading off lower premiums and whatever in the with the public option, whatever. But that's where I think we will probably go in the in some time. But I don't do forecasts, so <laughs> I'm not going to tell you exactly when it's going to be, but that one seems to be the most logical scenario. It's going to take a while. Obviously, the providers are going to hate it because the pro- public sector rates are significantly lower than the private sector rates. And, you know, in the public option, the benefits are not quite as good. So, you know, at Johns Hopkins, as a private sector person, I have an out-of-pocket maximum. I have dental benefits. I have uh, eyeglass benefits. I have a whole set of benefits benefits that the Medicare beneficiary doesn't have. And I'm not going to be so pleased to give all those things up. But, you know, that's where I think we're going to go. But but no magic bullet somewhere overseas that will fix this. I, I don't think so. I mean, I, you know, I think it's all taking a great idea from Germany, taking a different great idea from Holland, taking another great idea from... So, like, the whole concept of hospice came from the UK. And I think, you know, those kinds of things are, are importable. Whole systems, probably not importable. Same. I broadly agree. Um, what, what I would say is that the idea of moving away from like a siloed employer by employer uh, system towards a more individually oriented system sort of has the advantage that if you're an employer, you might have staff in like a dozen different neighborhoods around a metro area, which means you have to have every single hospital pretty much in your network, which means that your leverage is very, very poor. And moving from that kind of arrangement to an arrangement where individuals are controlling the choice of plans, I, I care whether my own hospitals in the network and maybe one or two other facilities, but I really don't care whether 10 or 12 other facilities on the other side of the city are, are in my network. And that 
empowers the insurer to get a much better deal and potentially creates some much more cost uh, sensitivity into the system. I think that is a potential reform that could be helpful and, and would sort of uh, draw a little bit off the, the competing payer systems, the, the sort of like Holland, like Germany, that move to more individually oriented insurance markets. Well, we will see how this goes. Thank you both very much. Chris Pope, Jerry Anderson. Thank you. Okay, that's our show for this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Also, as usual, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.